Hello and welcome to Just Stories. We share inspiring stories of real people leading lives impacted by social justice, advocacy, and service. Hear how our guests have used their experiences to make a difference in the lives of others. And remember, it's all about the story, theirs and yours. Just Stories. Hey, Jean. Hey, Mark. How are you doing today? Uh -huh. I'm doing well. Happy May. It is May. Yay. It is May. Yes. And it's been uh, good to get some sunshine and move forward. Yeah. Ready yep, for some yep. summertime trips a little bit. Yeah. Trips. Graduation. My son's graduating from high school. So I'm excited about that. And mine too. Uh, from college. Yeah. Wow. How is it that these kids get older and we just stay the same? Yeah, I just right? don't know. That's, like that's how it works though. For that's sure. exactly how it works. It's so much fun. But yeah, yeah, I'm glad that the weather's warming up, the flowers are actually blooming, and uh, birds are singing, and fresh air feels good. Yes, for sure, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So uh, why don't you tell us who we have today? I'm excited to tell us about who we have today because this is a, a gentleman that I've known for years, and uh, I have a connection with John Barba in a few different ways. His late wife, Margie, is a cousin with my wife, Emily. And Margie was a wonderful woman, and they had a special connection, uh, she and my wife. Um, and getting to know her and John and their whole family, um, I found a certain kinship with John. We both had married into this, this family, and um, we seemed to click. And I look up to John for bringing love and light into that family. His own special um, personality really touches that family. So. When we, when we started thinking of who to invite on to Just Stories, John immediately came to mind. Um, John has a day job. He's a school psychologist for the public schools in an alternative high school program for youth at risk. Uh, most of his career has been in special education and related fields. Although he also holds a doctorate in systematic and historical theology from the Catholic University of America. Now in 1999, John visited Haiti and saw the needs of uh, Haiti firsthand. Six years after that, he launched the Haiti College Fund uh, with the intent of meeting one of the country's core needs, access to higher education. Over the past 15 years, HCF has seen students graduate with degrees in medicine, engineering, computer science, and more. And contingent upon their scholarship is a pledge to return to their home uh, and the communities that they grew up in to serve the needs of their families and neighbors. And so it's uh, my pleasure to uh, introduce to our listeners, John Barba. Hello, John. Welcome. Hello. Nice to see you, so to speak. <laughs> yes. It's good to see you. It's good to reconnect a little bit. We, You and I haven't talked for a few years, and uh, we're, we're reconnecting now a little bit. So it's good to see you. Life life going okay for you all the way over there on the East Coast? Uh, yes. We're also enjoying spring, I must tell you. And uh, I think we might be a step or, uh, or two ahead of you in terms of the weather, but uh, the, the flowers are coming and, and I can't wait for summer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. Yeah. Do you do anything special when you get out in the summertime? Well, I have a big garden and uh, I grow a lot of berries uh, to strawberries and blueberries and raspberries. And oh. so I make a lot of jam. <laughs> That's what I do during the summer. <laughs> nice. Nice. Sounds great. So um, I, 
So I'm not part of the family. So I'm going to have a lot of questions. <laughs> so yes. You going to Haiti, you starting this um, really important organization. So um, Mark had mentioned the acronym HCF. Why don't you tell me and the listeners what um, HCF stands for and um, just describe it and what it does. Well, the H is for Haiti and C is for college and the fund is the F, HCF. Mm -hmm. We were originally... Um, uh, the Haiti College Scholarship Fund, which is a little bit more descriptive. Haiti College Fund is, is slightly more vague, but it was also very long to say Haiti College Scholarship Fund. <laughs> so we settled on HCF. Um, the word college is what we in America would call higher education or university. Uh, in Haiti, they have all the education is based on the French system. Mm. And so the word college uh, is really a high school. Um, so it gets a little confusing in translation <laughs> mm -hmm. because um, I'm using the American name college because that's what we do. We support higher education. And uh, as Mark mentioned at the beginning, this is a particular problem. All education in, in Haiti is paid for by the individual. There's very little public education. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's very difficult for families to raise enough money to send children to elementary school um, where the tuitions are very low. And then some of those are able to then afford high school or college. Uh, and after that, it really comes to a grinding halt because mm. the cost of college, I'm gonna go back to the word college, the cost of college in Haiti, uh, although it's very low by American standards, we estimate uh, $6,000 a year, mm -hmm. but that's way out of reach for most Haitians. So the purpose of the fund is to find donors in America who will support the very uh, talented and needy uh, students in Haiti to then get advanced education, launching them towards a profession or a business or some kind of way that they can um, be sustaining their families and also help the country. Mm. Tell us a little yeah. bit about um, what inspired this. Uh, back, I think, in 1999, I guess you visited Haiti. Can you give us a little bit of a story as to what inspired your involvement there? Well, um, you really have to back up a little bit before that because um, I became interested in, I, I it's hard to put it into words, but uh, we were living a very nice Christian life here in the suburbs of Virginia. Our children went to church. My wife and I, we both taught in the religious education program. We celebrated, you know, liturgies and everything was uh, okay. <laughs> but I always felt that there needed to be, or there should be more to being a Christian than just uh, participating as it were at that level. And I was hungry for 
more experience of what the radical call of Jesus is. Um, and so I became involved with the Missionaries of Charity, Mother Teresa's order. They have a couple of spots here in Washington, DC. And I just called them up to um, see what was going on. And they said, oh, we have a soup kitchen. Would you like to come help at that? And that really began a process of conversion. It brought me out of my safe suburban style of religion and uh, brought me to a different place. You know, I saw the, the areas where the missionaries of charity go are, are the poorest areas of the cities and, and no difference in Washington. Um, and uh, it was quite, a, quite an eye opener for me. Uh, I ended up having experiences with my children, bringing them down there and then other people at my church. But I was never really able to um, win over uh, the suburban kind of mentality to really see that this was important. This was not just charity. This was really living out our Christian vocation. So long story short, my process of conversion, which led me to Catholic University and my formal studies there, um, it put the bug in me that I needed to get more educated and more involved. And so Haiti was a kind of um, lucky happenstance, if you will. There was a group of um, doctors in this area that were supporting a hospital down there and they would go every year. And I heard about the group and I kind of glommed on to them. And so in 1999, I went with a hospital group to Haiti and that was my first exposure. But it really was this process of conversion from the safe suburban uh, kind of religious life that I was leading to a more challenging direct encounter with the poor. Thanks, John. And I, that word conversion is an interesting one because we think of conversion as coming to faith, you know, often. And, uh, but I've heard others uh, use that, you know, the idea of you know, it's my second conversion, or I was born again, again, kind of thing, you know, into service and into the, the, the work that uh, Christ calls us to, uh, the kind of work that you're doing. So you said that with, with Haiti, it was a, a lucky happenstance. And so what was your initial interaction with them? And then why did you keep this affinity with Haiti? Yeah, no, it's a, it's important. I mean, when I say lucky happenstance, that's putting a nice gloss on it. It was a profoundly disturbing <laughs> experience for me personally. I had, again, you know, I'm the good kid from the suburbs here. I had never really been, even in my work in Washington, D.C. in Anacostia with the Missionaries of Charity, I would not really been around such um desperate situations and seeing the uh, systemic problems that can affect a whole people when the poverty uh, turns into misery. So I was uh, really taken aback. As a matter of fact, I would say for several years after that, uh, I was really struggling to figure out what to do because it, it was this wake up call, oh my God, this is terrible, but we need to do something here. Well, what can be done? And um, it's very hard to know what to do in that kind of situation because it's so overwhelming. Can you just tell us a little bit like what were you seeing? Like, because I just know from reading that, you know, Haiti ha faces many environmental and political and economical 
yeah. uh, stresses. So what were you actually seeing? What were you actually experiencing when you, when you come away and you're like, oh, there's just so much at Haiti. Could you just maybe help us visualize that a little bit? Oh, well, I'll try. I mean, um, it's, it's different from here. Things that we take for granted, like, you know, access to water, um, ready electricity, certainly internet, things like that are not in existence. In existence, I mean, generally available to people. But more to the point is the food insecurity. I mean, again, that's uh, that was shocking to me how how difficult it is. Uh, how many people um, now? The, the Haitians do not go around begging. It's not like that kind of thing. As a matter of fact, uh, I, it's hard to generalize about a whole population, but I would say they're proud people and they, they have great. Um, goodwill towards all, particularly the visitors that come and try to help. But nonetheless, their situation was uh, a wake-up call for me because I had not seen what it was like. The clinic, I went with a hospital group, so the focus was on health and health care. And it became apparent to me that, you know, the wages of sin may be death, but the wages of poverty are a shorter lifespan. You would see that, you would see malnourished children, you would see people uh, with ailments and they brought, just to give an example, they brought a young man who couldn't walk to the hospital in a wheelbarrow. That was the only way they could get them there. Another woman who was, had, um, was having a, problem in childbirth, they carried this woman, I don't know, four or five miles on a stretcher only to get her to the hospital and she died. It was this kind of, um, these kinds of images stick with you. And, and it became clear to me that what we have here is not a situation where you can just go in and try to fix this or help with that. The whole system was um, was broken and I wanted to do something to try to improve the situation on a on a larger scale even though the effort to do that is is even more overwhelming that brings us to um, the story of um, the the startup of HCF and uh, I, I I think you've mentioned a story to us about um, a young man that you met at a market. Yes, thank you. Uh, Donald is uh, my special, special friend, you might say. Um, so in, in the town where we were principally, which is in the center of the country, uh, there's a big market um, on Saturdays and people come in. When I say market, these are all street merchants, you know, where women bring in a basket full of cabbages or they get access to some used clothing and they sit there and they lay it out in the marketplace and people walk around and, and purchase. And it's a noisy and dirty and confusing place. Um, market day is, is something to behold. And in the corner, sort of on the side of the market, there was a table that had uh, books. Well, there weren't even books, I would say. They were more like magazines uh, for children. 
and you know simple things like um, little arithmetic books or some kind of story books, but very rudimentary, very poor quality. And um, but there was this young man. I don't know how old he was at the time, maybe 12 or so. And he was looking at the books. And I went over to him and I said, would you like, well, as best I could, I said, would you like one? And he was thrilled and he said, yes. And I said, well, what else would you like? And he said, a pair of shoes, he was barefoot. And so I got him a pair of sandals and we became friends. He, he, I wanted to bring a broom home. So he helped me buy the broom. This became a famous story. Every year I would go get another broom. Um, but anyway, Donald, that's how I met Donald, was in the market. And I was struck by the fact that he didn't ask for money, but he was certainly happy to see me the next year. And then the year after that, I had been told not to give money to individuals. We all worked through the Catholic church there. I was traveling, but at that point I had left the hospital group. I was traveling with a Catholic parish group that was supporting the Catholic parish in this town. And we were told never to give money to individuals because uh, everything should go through the church. That way we wouldn't be asked over and over again for help. And I just finally gave up on that <laughs> as a rule because he asked me if I would help him go to school. At that point, he was, I think, just starting his high school or maybe even finishing his elementary school. And it was like $60 a year. I mean, it was money I could afford. So. Long story short, I did that and then it was high school. And then of course, he turned out to be a very bright young man and he wanted to go to college. Um, and he has proven to be so excellent a student and, and, a, and a great human being. Um, this is a young man who at home, you speak Creole, which is the native language of Haiti. And when you go to school, you have to learn French because the schooling is in French. He wanted to go study in the Dominican Republic, which is next door to Haiti because they have a superior uh, medical school there. And that's all in Spanish. And so Donald had to learn Spanish. <laughs> and to me and in his letters and everything, he would write in English. Now, how do you take a kid from the street, a kid without sandals, uh, and he now speaks four languages. I mean, it's, it just gives you the idea of how much talent there is in people in general, in Haitians in particular, and how underserved they are by not being able to go to university. There's a big backlog of high school graduates, which are very small in number, I think fewer than 10% of the population actually achieve a high school diploma. But even after that, a very small percentage of them are able to go on to college. So it's really, um, it's one of the reasons why Haiti isn't able to advance is again, they do not have the education that they need. So Donald's an inspiration for me personally, and then a kind of representative of what can be done with higher education. He's now not only a doctor, but a pediatrician. He got a um, three-year residency at a hospital in the, in the North and he wants to start his own pediatric clinics. John, what a great story. Um, but I do have a follow-up question for you. 
I'm thinking of the adage, give a man a fish and he'll eat for days, teach him how to fish and he'll eat forever. At the beginning of your story, essentially you were giving Donald fish, like so many of us wanting to do whatever we can to help. But ultimately you saw the need to meet uh, deeper needs in Donald's life and in Haiti. Can you speak to your philosophy of meeting immediate needs versus addressing more systemic needs? Oh, yes. No, I think you're right. Um, social sin is not caused by you and not caused by me. It's caused by all of us. And social sin doesn't exist in terms of just, you know, I was unkind to this one person. Social sin is those structures and um, situations that have evolved that are against the will of God who wants us to be uh, to enjoy the fruits of creation and to be loving um, lovers of, of all. So when we talk about the need for structural change, what we're really talking about are the fact that the systems that are set up right now need to be changed. And systemic change is very hard to do. Um, you can um, you again, you can't just throw money at the cause, but it's also very important because until the structures change, that's all you will be doing. You'll be bringing, you know, help and until Haiti has enough doctors of its own, it's going to rely on Americans coming down and French and others to, to perform operations that they're not trained for. So this notion of um, helping Haiti really comes down to trying to change these inequitable structures which are against God's plan and to try to develop means within the country so that they can themselves um, make the uh, place better and become less reliant on foreigners coming in. So it's a, it's a little bit of a this and that you do work through individuals in their own education or their own projects. Uh, but at the same time, the focus is on trying to make a difference in the country as a whole. It's a big, it's a big task and I wouldn't say that we've made much of a dent in it, but I like the idea of structural change. And I think it's where, uh, it's, it's where we need to go uh, as a people as a people of God, because um, God doesn't want there to be poverty and misery. Um, yes, people can be poor, but they don't have to suffer if we can help them. John, tell us a story. Tell us a little story about one of your success stories about someone who's come back and what they're up to right now in their community, because um, part of the arrangement of their scholarship is that they go back to their community. Can you share with us a story about someone who's who's uh, working in their communities right now and the impact that they're having? Oh, yes, thank you. That's a great uh, opportunity for me to tell you the story of uh, a young man, he's not young so much anymore, named Musanto. Uh, again, a very talented young man. He wanted to be an, a veterinarian. And as I mentioned, the Catholic Church was supporting, it's largely an agricultural area where this town is. And um, so they could see the utility of having a professional, professionally trained veterinarian. He went to a school um, 
outside of where he lived and uh, focused on veterinary science, but also agronomy, which is the growing of plants. And so when he came back, he worked uh, as expected for a period of time, uh, helping people there do what they needed to do to try to improve food production uh, and started vaccination programs for animals and um, all, all kinds of things that you don't need to know chapter and verse, but but the outcome, the, the good part is that he was, he's been so successful in coming back to his community that he decided to start his own little school um, for the purpose of training other young people who won't have the opportunity to go away to learn agronomy and veterinary science. And so he has started his own school and I'm in the process of helping him find scholarship money for that. It's a much reduced kind of uh, school. It's what we might call rural education. It's taking people for whom the opportunity to go to uh, even high school is probably beyond their means, but people who live on the land and uh, need to be trained to improve the opportunities. Haiti's uh, agricultural situation is not great. Uh, it's not uh, a rich loamy soil to work with. And there are lots of problems with deforestation and access to water for agricultural purposes. But they all, all these problems have some kinds of workarounds or some kinds of solutions. And Musanto is great at figuring them out. So he's uh, bought land, he has a communal farm. He has projects going here and there, raising goats, which is a common uh, food source in Haiti and uh, teaching uh, these young people how to make the most out of the land, uh, introducing some new um, uh, trees and, and other uh, plants that can be of service to the community that don't dry out as much or can tolerate the drought better. And it's just been a marvel to see him. Uh, now he's got, well, I don't know, a whole bunch of dozens of young people in his program. And again, he's trying to educate them about some things, but it's not a complete um, full education, but it's a very practical kind of learning and it's suited for the community. So there's one man who has gotten a college education who is now influencing dozens and dozens of other young people um, and making a, a real, positive contribution to his community. Well, it does seem like you've come a long way from the church that you were originally talking about and feeling, if I might, might label it a little frustrated with their, with their scope and vision. And uh, you decided to remove yourself from that and seek higher, higher mountains to climb in different ways to outreach. Um, this whole idea of you uh, speaking to institutional and systemic oppression is is quite admirable. Fueling the people um, so that they could become more of the solution to a systemic um, oppression that you have identified. And, and I think you're right. It is very hard to make change. And I think providing educational resources to the people 
fully capable people and giving them access to that um, is quite re rewarding and, um, and, uh, and quite challenging at the same time. Um, let's just talk a little bit about the HCF program. How are students identified and, and what's included in their scholarship? Because um, you had mentioned you hadn't made a dent and I don't want you to you know, sell yourself short. I mean, you've been doing this, you've been doing like a labor of love. So why don't we just talk a little bit about what you actually do provide because- Okay. Um, <laughs> thank you. When you consider the, the amount, the number of students who would like to go to university, I get emails all the time. Um, somehow people find us on the website and it's always a great sadness when I have to write back and say, no, I'm sorry, we're not taking any applicants at this time. Oh, I see, I see. Basically, uh, an application uh, is filled out that is uh, lists their education, their high school education, their grades. Uh, they have to provide letters of reference. Um, it's a kind of typical application that you might uh, find going to a university. Um, uh, we try to pick people that are going to be uh, great students. It's hard to know from a piece of paper uh, whether someone will be successful or not as a, as a student. Um, that's why in the early days in particular, we relied a lot on personal recommendations that came through the Catholic Church down there, people that uh, uh, were known to the church. Um, but now we've gotten away from just that parochial uh, focus and we to have applicants from all over Haiti, so to speak, again, very small numbers, but they come from the north, they come from Port-au-Prince, they come from uh, towns in the west. And uh, if we have the money, we have they have to identify what area of study they're interested in. Haiti uh, colleges in Haiti are a little different from here. You don't get a broad education or a liberal arts degree. Uh, everything is very um, uh, focused. So if you want to go, if you want to be a lawyer, you go to a law school, both undergraduate and then you get special training. The same thing with medicine. You go to a medical college and then you get extra training beyond that. So you have to identify the area and then they have to list what university they expect to attend. And our money uh, goes directly to the students um, because we've found that that's the safest, really the safest conduit and includes their tuition. Uh, they also are given a stipend for um, food and lodging, most of which is done in private homes. And then transportation um, because in Haiti, uh, particularly in the cities, uh, you, you get around on these little vehicles called tap taps, which are pickup trucks that have benches put in the back. And you get this pickup truck, which brings you down to the center over there. And then you get a different pickup truck that brings you over here and people get around on tap taps. So we pay for everything. Um, they're oftentimes they don't have books like we have books. The, um, the educational materials are copies of um, workbooks or whatever, and they have to pay to get the copies. You have to pay for everything in Haiti. <laughs> so the students have a book fee, but it's not to buy books. It's to pay for the copies, uh, food, shelter, and uh, the tuition. Those are the main parts of it. And, we and, and that sounds great. And how many students have you had so far 
um, through this program? Oh, um, I would say it's probably fewer than 20. Um, I, I, I don't make a complete count, um, but it hasn't been, hasn't been many more than 20. <laughs> I would, I yeah. would have remembered that. <laughs> okay. And, and how do you get your, your funding? So you talked about budgeting and things like oh. that. And yeah. So like maybe this may, might help our listeners figure out how they can possibly help. If oh, well, <laughs> that would be wonderful. <laughs> um, you know, I, I learned somewhere along the line, or I should have known ahead of time, that if you're going to start a scholarship fund, you should have money. There are many charitable efforts that are not as dependent upon money. You know, that you may be bringing other resources to the table, but scholarships are money, and you have to raise money. And particularly, it's always been a philosophy of mine that once you start somebody in university, you can't back out of the commitment. You can't give them two years or three years of a university education and say, well, I'm sorry, I don't have enough money now for you to finish your degree. So that's been a real challenge for HCF. I think HCF is all volunteer. We have no paid staff. There are no expenses are minimal, a PO box. If I do get something printed, um, you know, that has to be paid for. But all the money that is collected goes directly to the students. So that part is good, but it also means that it's hard to raise money. We don't have a, um, somebody to write grants. We don't have uh, anybody to do development. We don't have a fundraising um, branch. <laughs> so I always say we're a mom and pop organization, except there's no mom, I'm only the pop. And uh, now, but anybody who's interested and would want to help, um, we do have a very rudimentary website. That's another area that could be developed, but you go to uh, haitycollegefund.org, you just spell it out and uh, that will have a donate button on it and we'll have uh, a link to our, our five-year plan for developing the fund and a, a contact information for me, how to reach john.barba at haitycollegefund.org. Yeah, money is, is, is hard to raise. It's a whole different world of activity. So even if your heart's in the right place or you have a great cause, when it comes to raising money, that's a, that's a real trick. And I certainly would um, be grateful to anyone who could help us in that. Yeah, we definitely have a lot of listeners who can lend their talents in grant writing or fundraising or publicity or web development. So just finding your email address through haitycollegefund.org um, would it be a great start. Yeah, thank you. That would be cool. I'll just put a plug in for colleges to say I've always thought that colleges here in the United States, which have so much energy and so much talent, would be perfect if we could find some colleges that were interested in this project and they could do their own fundraising. There's a kind of, um, we used to call it, uh, it's hard to say, conscientization, where you learn about something, your consciousness raising, if you will, that's easier to say. You raise your consciousness about a particular problem, then you do something about it. 
And uh, this would be a great opportunity for undergraduates here in this country to be involved with undergraduates in Haiti. So if there's any connections, university to university, that would be another avenue of support. Yeah, I think that's a really great point because my dad always used to say, knowing the problem is half the solution. Mm-hmm. So the more we raise the awareness of people who are um, outside of our own communities, outside of our own little bubbles, like you had started talking about before in, um, in the beginning of our conversation, um, once our awareness is raised about people in different communities and their different needs, then we get to have um, access to solutions to those problems. Let me just add to that my favorite um, quotes from scripture. I'm not a great scripture quoter, but um, in the letter to the Hebrews, um, there's this wonderful line that he says, Jesus died outside the gate. And because it, the crucifixion was outside of the walls of the city. And then it says, we too must go out to meet him outside the gate because here we have no lasting home. And that kind of summarizes my attitude. We, we tend to be so overwhelmed in our own pursuits as if this were our our little lives that we lead as this were the be all and end all, but God is really calling us to go outside the gate. So to the degree that we can move ourselves beyond our comfort zones and get get into areas that are challenging, it's really been a blessing in my life, even though I get discouraged at times, it's certainly overall uh, been a wonderful addition to my life. I have no regrets about being involved with Haiti. I just wish I could be more successful. Well, John, well said, and um, I appreciate the reminder that when we take part in God's good work in the world, we're the ones that get blessed as well. And it's a reminder for all of us and our call um, to get outside of the gate and to care for the needs of others by empowering them to, um, to, to be raised up um, themselves through education. What a fantastic ministry that you've you've started and you've kindled over these years. And um, we hope the best. We hope the best for continued growth for HCF and continued success for the students that you're touching and um, ultimately for, for Haiti. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. It's a passion of mine. Thank you, John, for all you do. And that wraps up this episode of Just Stories. We hope you've enjoyed this time and you'll join us again. Just Stories is a partnership with Our Savior's Lutheran Church, an ELCA member church, where all are welcome and we join in God's reconciling work, which prioritizes disenfranchised, vulnerable, and displaced people in our communities and the world. Your hosts are people of Christian faith, and we recognize that God works through many vehicles, including those of differing faith or of no faith. Our guests may or may not be members of Our Savior's Lutheran Church. If you enjoyed what you heard, tell a friend, and please subscribe. Tune in next time for more of Just Stories.